You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. This is a recording of a panel discussion at AIST's Conference of Major Superannuation Funds in Brisbane on Tuesday, 6 September 2022. The topic is 30 years of compulsory superannuation. And the three speakers have all had long careers in the superannuation industry. They are Anne-Marie O'Loughlin, Chair of Telstra Super and former CEO of HESTA, Alana Rubin, non-executive director of Slater and Gordon and Telstra and former chair of Australian Super, and Gary Weaven, senior advisor with Tanara Capital, the founding executive chair of Industry Fund Services and the former chair of IFM Investors. The facilitator is journalist and broadcaster, Ali Moore. Looking around the room and, and watching everyone getting coffee and even in the women's toilets, it's obvious that there's a lot of people here who have never known anything other than compulsory superannuation in their lives. You've seen the superannuation guarantee grow, but it's always been there. Of course, that hasn't always been the case, and I can still vividly remember my very first day at the ABC as a young graduate cadet, and I was sent off down the road to do two things. They weren't really recommendations. They seemed to me rather more like requirements. The first thing was join the union. The second thing was sign up for, if I remember correctly, what was then the Commonwealth Superannuation Scheme. None of my friends at that point had superannuation. It was the 1980s and the superannuation guarantee was still in the heads and the hearts of those who finally built it. I was one of less than 40% of workers who had it. Of course, so that all changed 30 years ago in 1992. So to have a look at how we got to where we are and where we still need to go, we're joined by three people for this panel who have been intricately involved with the system for decades. Here in Brisbane, we've got Anne-Marie O'Loughlin, the chair of Telstra Super. Anne-Marie is also director of Bank Australia and her last executive role was CEO of HESTA. And before that, she was a Victorian branch secretary of the Australian Education Union. To her left, we have Alana Rubin, non-executive director at Slater and Gordon and Telstra. And Alana's had a very long career in superannuation. She was an advocate to extend the SG in awards and also as an executive trustee and as chair of Australian Super. She started her career working in social policy at the ACT. And joining us remotely is Gary Weaven, Senior Advisor at Tanara Capital. He's the Founding Executive Chair of Industry Fund Services and, of course, as you are all probably aware, as ACTU Assistant Secretary in the 80s, he played a seminal role in the development of the industry super funds. And I'll have to ask Gary when we get going whether he was at that uh, Indian restaurant for lunch if you've read the Australian Financial Review this morning. A reminder, the full bios are on the site and you can also join this conversation, uh, so do send your questions through as we discuss. Join me in welcoming our panel. So, 30 years of compulsory super, it is, uh, it's quite the achievement, but there will be a lot of people who are not necessarily aware of exactly how we got to where we are. So, Anne-Marie, can you give us the potted history? 
Thanks, Ali. So um, each of us were playing different roles, obviously, at the time of Universal, um, when Universal Super was um, introduced. And I was um, already in the super industry. Um, I was with the, one of the um, education unions in Victoria. And of course, a lot of our members were members of public sector schemes. And if you look at the stats that, um, of people that did have super, like Ali, back in those, that time, between 40 and 50%, depending on which stats you look at. And it was generally the public sector and corporations. But we have to remember that out of that 40 or 50%, um, there was a very large proportion that did not have super within that, and that was women. And I think just a little bit of what happened with women in public sector schemes, of which I know um, intimately well, um, is just important to set this scene, uh, because super at that time, um, particularly in the public sector, was uh, so employees paid a contribution into the superannuation scheme. They didn't get an employer contribution unless they stayed to retirement. So it was schemes set up for people who had long-term uninterrupted careers. And in the teaching service and public sector in Victoria, not long before I started teaching, uh, women had to resign when they got married from their permanent position. And when they resigned from that permanent position, they lost access to superannuation. So you could have two teachers teaching on a Friday afternoon, they get married on Saturday, man and a woman, get married on Saturday, come back Monday, the man's still permanent, still has super, the woman is now temporary, no super. So when you look at those stats and you think it's universally applied, it's not the case. And when I did start teaching, I had a choice between, and this always gives a laugh, so I always tell this story, between the State Superannuation Fund and the Married Women's Fund. And that's what the fund was called. It was called the Married Women's Fund. And the advantage of the Married Women's Fund was because when you resigned, you got some contributions back on your own interest, no employer contribution. And so we got rid of that too, let me say, um, over time. So when the award super came in, um, for those in the public sector, and thinking that this covered mostly feminised industries, um, teaching, nursing, other public uh, sector roles, um, that was an opportunity to actually remove some of those discriminatory aspects that had been there since the day dot and make things um, a little bit more equal. Although when we get to what needs to be improved, you'll see the inequalities have, uh, have gone, gone through the system. So for me, that was what was happening when the 3% award super came in and we negotiated changes to the public sector awards to reflect that. Um, and then Universal Super came in. And it's fabulous today that we're celebrating 30 days of, uh, 30 days, 30 years <laughs> of, um, of, you know, compulsory Universal Super because it's been a fabulous um, a social advancement for this country and put us in a really good place. But we need to look at where we were when we started and some things along the way that we need to continue to address. And we will come back to all those various challenges. But Gary, if I can bring you in at this point, if you look back over the last 30 years and with the benefit of hindsight, what are the big successes, do you think, in how the system was designed? Uh, well, it, it, was, it was built on an old, you know, out of, uh, out of past its useful date system. So it, uh, it's not perfect and has never been perfect. But one of, the thing, one of the greatest things about it, of course, is that before compulsory super, we had that campaign that set up the industry funds and established really across the whole of the, the workforce uh, funds that had representative trustee boards. And I think it's self-evident now that that design of, of representative trustee boards was extremely important 
um, to, to make sure that the schemes were run in the interests of the members uh, and to actually garner um, the best returns. I mean, those funds uh, have outperformed over every time period, every uh, time period over all of those years, basically has seen outperformance by the representative system. And I think, you know, competition uh, in the system was a great thing. Um, there was obviously a, a political choice that could have been made to go down the road of a single national scheme. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was ever feasible, uh, but uh, I think in the end it was it's preferable that there is competition uh, in the in the in the system, and um, and because most of those funds were set up in the 80s and were based on industrial campaigns, often quite uh, bitterly fought and hard fought, that missionary spirit, that missionary zeal of the trustees carried through and has carried through, I think, right up to this day and is the sort of secret source, I think, in, uh, in, in high-performing funds. I mean, you can go to the detail of the investment strategies and so on that we employed, uh, but I think the secret source uh, really was that um, the missionary zeal of the trustee system in trying to do as best you possibly could for your members. Can I just ask the tech team if we could perhaps have Gary on our foldback screen here, because it would make it easier for us to have a conversation with him. Thank you. Um, Alana, can I ask you, what do you, I suppose, how do you categorise the successes of the system and what do you think was the most visionary about the system when you look back? Thanks for the question. And I think the most visionary part for me was really the establishment of what we know as industry super funds, because as Gary said, they were established with the sole purpose of you know, facilitating the best retirement income for their members. You know, no profits going to shareholders or profits for members. They had a trustee system that had sponsoring employers and representatives of members through the unions. They covered an industry. They facilitated portability. They're 100% vesting. They were just so unique in terms of their structure in the Australian market. And from that and the culture of industry super, a whole lot of other innovation came. We had the continued success of the investment performance of the funds, and that has given a strong retirement saving for all their members. And as a universal scheme, you really can't underestimate the importance of super for workers. Other than their house, it's generally their largest asset. So we've got the success of the funds, we've got a culture that continued. And again, when you have a look at companies it's very hard to always keep the culture as you grow. And industry super now represents over a trillion dollars in assets. And it's never lost that central North Star of doing the right things for members. So I think that is incredibly important. As I look around the room, it also strikes me that we have developed an industry of really talented individuals not just on the investment side, but the administration, servicing, marketing, again with that North Star of always doing the right thing.
for members. And as I look around the room, notwithstanding the light in my eyes, <laughs> I can also see just the diversity of participants. And it does remind me that when industry super started, and you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the architects, you know, being Bill Kelty, Paul Keating, Gary, Ian Ross. There was also a number of really talented, smart women that were brought in at the very earliest stages to run and manage the schemes. And people like, you know, Mavis Robinson, who you all know, Anne-Marie, Helen Hewitt, Anne Byrne, Linda Rubenstein, Lydia Jerkovic, and I'll stop there because if I keep going, I'll forget someone and get into trouble. But it was the, I think just having that diversity, that commitment, has helped maintain the culture of the funds. And you would have to say over the last 30 years, for all the individual things that have happened, the establishment of the funds as the recipient of the SG has been, I think, one of the most important initiatives of the system. I wanted to ask a question about the union roots of the industry, and it may be one that you all say is not one that should be asked, but uh, my former colleague, Tiki Fullerton, was raising this the other day, that, you know, for example, just one example, Anne-Marie, I'll put the question to you, but the move to sector-wide bargaining, on the one hand, you would think that from a union point of view, you would be all in favour. From the other hand, you could argue productivity needs flexibility, therefore you need more returns, you wouldn't be in favour. To what extent are the union roots a dictator today, or that may be too strong a word, but to what extent do they influence how funds are run today? Yeah, I think dictator is too strong a word, and I recall a story way back, way back, which I won't go through the whole detail of, but I think people forget that trustee board decisions are two-thirds majority, and so, um, you know, to say that they're run by one side or another is, is just not true. So, I've, you know, I always sort of put that... that um, caveat in. The other thing is, and people will tell you the stories that when you have employer reps and union reps in your board meetings, um, the other issues get left at the door and then it's always about the members. And num you know, numerous boards, people sitting in this room can tell you that, that that's how they, they operate. But the union influence is very important because it does represent um, their members, so the working, you know, working people. Uh, it's the way that they are represented in the in the economy. It is because super such a large part of the economy. So they still play a very important role, and you know, it's why we have industry super. And you know, super funds now have morphed, and we really have for profit and and not for profit or for re retail. I think two sectors as opposed to sort of the arbitrary barriers that we've had before. Um, but, uh, you know, that's still important. I don't know if that answers the question directly, no, but it's I, sort of... Don't, we don't need to labour the point. Um, Gary, can I ask you what you think of as the weak points of the system? And you say the system's not perfect, and Anne-Marie talked at the beginning, and we'll go back to that, the inequities in the system um, for men versus women. But how do you see the immediate weak points, the challenges for the moment? Well, it took an awful long time. Uh, to get rid of the, the minimum monthly um, contribution requirement to qualify for super. So that's meant that for 30 years um, or more, uh, a lot of um, casual part-time uh, workers, and that includes a, a, uh, an overweight uh, um, waiting to women workers, of course, have missed out because they never, with any one single employer in a month, got to the minimum amount of income 
that qualified them for the compulsory super. So that's finally been a remedy, and, um, but the working through of that will take a long time um, to, to, um, to even up uh, for what the damage that's been done to a lot of those workers, men and women, over all of those years. I think the other thing that I, I've often said over the years um, is unfinished business uh, for the superannuation industry is its failure really so far to address in any meaningful way the question of housing supply, uh, the question of affordable housing, social housing with appropriate government um, support, um, but the total supply issues around housing. And there's a lot of reasons and excuses given for that. Um, but the main one has been it's been easier to invest in other asset classes, I think, in Australia than it has been in residential property. So what's happened, of course, is governments have, have made things worse by and large by uh, addressing the demand side in the run-up to each election. They give a few handouts, uh, which addresses the demand side, increases the price, drives prices up. Um, but very little has been done uh, publicly uh, by governments uh, and, and also by the union movement in addressing that issue. And I think that is overdue to be addressed. You can see some really good signs now of funds starting to focus on how they might do that and do that in a way that produces good, strong, um, strong risk-rated uh, rewards, returns. Uh, but I think that is a big unfinished business area. And that's an interesting conversation, which we'll get to in just a minute, uh, around the whole nation-building and national interest discussion. But before we go there, Elana, can I ask you, if you were designing the system today, what would you do differently? I think we've all touched on the issue of women and super and part-time workers and super. The system, and it was a fabulous system and still is, was designed for full-time permanent workers. And we can see now, when you look at the retirement balances of men and women, there's just an unacceptable differential for the financial security between them. And when you look at what we can do better going forward, we really need to address the lower levels of retirement savings for women by either changing the super contribution in terms of percentages, paying super on parental leave and extended leave. There are a number of mechanisms which we, I think, are compelled to look at. Otherwise, we'll continue to have a situation where women are retiring with significantly less financial security than men. But can it wait? I mean, as uh, Eva made clear in her opening address this morning, the government's committed to paying on maternity leave when the budget allows. How long is a piece of string? Well, I think we've all got a role to play in advocating for change to come soon. And even without government assistance, there are some employers that are paying more in, for their female staff than for their males, recognising that you know, it is um, a good practice for them, but also just the responsibility about trying to ensure that women retire with financial security. I do want to also say that while it is an issue about paying um, super on parental leave and longer extended leave, we also have to do a lot to lift the pay differential of women. Because if you're earning less, you will get less super. And women are still concentrated in lower paid industries 
with less employment security and therefore that has huge implications for their retirement savings as well. Anne-Marie, can I ask you the same question about designing the system today? And can I throw in a question from the audience as well? We're, we're talking about women and we've talked about uh, that disparity for, for a bit, but gig economy, there's, I mean, not all people who are underpaid and have irregular work are women. No, that is, that's true. And I think, so the, the basic problem is the structure of the system that was aligned to full-time work. Great at the time, but in you know hindsight, hindsight's always a great thing. Um, that's been a bit of a disadvantage for a lot of people that it's based on that. So it's a, it's about having other policy levers that will compensate for the fact that it is an income-based system because we're not going to turn around and change the whole basis of the system. That would not be a sensible thing to do. Um, but we need policy levers that can can compensate for that. So things like SG on parental leave. Um, you know, reducing the, the gender the gender pay gap, but other um, there can be other government policy uh, contributions to women. You know, we know about compound interest, or for those people who are, uh, are left out of the system, and a great majority of them are women. Even gig economy workers the same. So um, you can go go through and look at that. But they're the sorts of things that need to be looked at. And I think one of the key things is that you can't trade off one thing. I remember a few years ago, you know, we got a, a, one of the governments came and said, well, we can trade off this thing for women and you can have this. Which one would you like? And it's like, well, we have to have both. Like, you know, it's not about women putting in more voluntary contributions because mostly they are in lower paid feminised industries where they don't have the capacity to do that. And so we've got to look at that and we've got to look at tax concessions. So, um, you know, it is, it's, we've just got to address that. The tax concessions go to the highest um, income earners uh, in the country and, you know, for me it's about time the 49% started taking some of the pain from the 51%. It's, uh, it's interesting on the, the, the trade-off and the tax question. <laughs> Here's a question. Is paid SG on parental leave more important for the government to fund instead of the legislated stage three tax cuts? I'm not even going to put that to you because I think we can probably all guess the answer to, to that one. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the challenge of investing, and Gary, you, you mentioned there about putting, you know, uh, fund, helping to fund housing supply. And a, a question here from the audience is how do you you do this given the proviso of investing in the best financial interests of members and Gary you did talk about making it more attractive but can I just broaden that question out for a minute to go to that issue of nation building because it seemed to me a little ironic that we sort of have the declared end of the super wars but at the same time uh, Jim Chalmers does kick off this real conversation about the role of super in nation building and national interest because the other side of that of course is that this is money for my retirement and I don't want to, you know, I want the country to prosper, but I also want to make sure that, you know, my returns are good. So, Gary, th that, you know, I suppose the question bottom line is, is it a binary choice? And are there ways that we can play in the national interest space and still ensure best interest, fiduciary interests for, for members? Well, um, first of all, at, at the risk of plugging my my former firm, LFM Investors, you know, that, that's a sort of a living, breathing example now globally of the fact that um, infrastructure can be a tremendously rewarding area of investment, uh, as well as being uh, in the nature of nation building. And, um, you know, industry funds were leaders in opening up infrastructure, uh, both in Australia and globally. 
as an asset class, and it's been probably one of the main reasons for the outperformance of the industry fund sector. Uh, in, res in respect to um, taking that further and including the area of housing, um, funds have to have a balance of risk and return. So it's not a question of funds look for the highest returning investment always, because that's also the highest risk investment. And by, almost by definition, the most volatile returns are at the high risk end and the least volatile are at the low risk end. And funds need a, a balanced position. And the role where government can skew the investment uh, is through clever use of policy. What, what they need to do is not try and displace the private sector. They need to try and leverage the private sector, including superannuation funds and including offshore money, for that matter, um, to get the, the, the biggest bang for their buck in terms of social outcomes. I just make this point, though. In, in, the ha in terms of housing, if you look at across the board, you can achieve uh, balanced fund returns through a balanced portfolio in housing. At the build-to-sell end, at the affordable end, you can, you can do that. If you want to skew the mix more towards the affordable and social housing end, it's true you'll need some government policies to give a little tweak to the returns. But I would remind you that at that low end, at that low income end, there is no demand risk. There is no demand risk of any uh, moment at the affordable and social end. Almost by definition, the demand is there. It's a question of whether the supply can be um, delivered at an acceptable cost of capital. And uh, so, you know, if you're looking at a balanced fund, I think already the funds can see, start to see ways to invest across the board. Uh, that can be skewed towards the social needs with smart leveraging of government policy. And on that leveraging, I do note that the government has announced, what, $575 million from the National Housing Infrastructure Facility, which is designed to try and, I suppose, you know, lure was the word used, uh, super funds into the housing sector. Alana, can I ask you about this national interest? And it wasn't just uh, housing that the Treasurer, social housing the Treasurer mentioned, it was also, of course, the energy transition. Yes, and I think it's worth just reminding ourselves that funds are already investing in nation building. We invest in listed companies, private companies, we provide debt to companies, we're invested in infrastructure and property, we're invested in private equity. So we are already investing in things which are central to our economy, which drive productivity, which deliver jobs, and most importantly, with the evidence of the last 30 years, have delivered strong returns to members. So I don't actually believe that investing in, you know, things that are good for the economy and things that can drive employment are contradictory to delivering good returns. I think it's true, though, that there are some underserved sectors of the economy, and affordable housing is certainly one. I think renewables, social infrastructure is another category, where what we need is to invest for an appropriate risk return, and it's the point that Gary made. It's not the highest return that's what drives decisions. It's the return appropriate to the risk. 
And I, like Gary, think that government has a role in setting policy and providing some stability for those investment decisions, which are very long term. And also having a discussion with sponsors about the right allocation of risk at different stages of a project. And hopefully we've now got a government that is willing to have those discussions with funds and investors so we can get the right outcome, not just for members, but also more broadly for the community. And this is a, an issue we'll talk about with trustees tomorrow as well. But Anne-Marie, there, there's, there's a number of challenges around this, isn't it? Because uh, if you look at that risk profile and then you look at the, your future, your super uh, measurements or performance measurements, they are done over an eight-year time horizon. I mean, what investment in terms of energy transition, for example, is going to go within eight years? I mean, these are multi-decade commitments, aren't they? Yeah, and it's part of the, the thing that needs to be looked at with the test. Um, clearly, some of the benchmarks that are being used are not appropriate, not fit for purpose, and that needs to be um, reassessed and changed. But, you know, I agree, with, obviously, with both um, Alana and Gary around, you know, super funds have a role to play, particularly in the affordable housing space, um, as to other finance banks, for example, where I'm involved as well. Um, but it needs to have the right policy settings and in some cases some underwriting from government that would actually make it easier for funds to be able to, to go into that space. But we have the capital to do it and we have the will to do it um, and we just need to find the way to, to make that happen. Um, and then part of that is if we're restricted by the benchmarks in the performance test that needs to be addressed as well, which everyone in this room knows needs to be addressed. So. That's pre preaching to the converted here. Um, a, a question about, I suppose, how much is going to have to change for super funds in the next 30 years, given that we're at this pivot point where it's been accumulation and now it's, it's retirement. Well, it's both, but it's also retirement. And I suppose how well-placed super funds are for that retirement stage in terms of knowing what their members want, what they need, and being able to service them. And if I can tie that for time purposes into the size question, and this morning again, uh, Paul Keating and Bill Kelty were saying they see 10 funds, each fund of half a trillion dollars. That's I don't know what that means for all of you in the room, quite frankly, for, in terms of how many trustees you need to run 10 funds, but that's, that would be 10 very, very big funds. So is, Gary, let me ask you, how much of the retirement phase uh, challenge was factored into building the system and therefore will be easy in terms of dealing with your members, and is big better in that context? Uh, well, um, there are very clear economies of scale in the three major areas of super are investing the money, accounting and the administration of the money and insurance, and each of those separately, there are enormous economies of scale. Uh, it's also true, though, that um, as a general rule in, in organisations and business and so on, there are diseconomies sometimes associated with scale. One of those is bureaucracy, another is hubris, um, and so it's not linear. It's not a simple linear matter. And as I think, I think uh, Bill may well have made the point actually in the Fin Review that um, he expects some smaller funds to survive uh, and through innovation and so on. And so do I. And so I, I don't think there's anything magical about the number of 10, you know, the press love to you know, seize onto these sorts of things. But, but 
there will be less. There, there will be uh, uh, less funds than there are today, uh, and they will be, on average, very, very large. Uh, what the exact mix is, I think, remains to be seen. And uh, that's a challenge for some of the smaller funds to be really great innovators. And it's also a challenge for the big funds not to lose their sense of purpose. Because, you know, back in the 80s when this all started, the whole of the industry outside of the government was run by the so-called life companies, mutual life companies. Not one of those survived. Not one of those companies that had total monopoly, oligopoly, are alive today. And that's because they lost their purpose, they lost their way, and then they disappeared. And, uh, you know, the same can happen to the, the great funds of today if they don't continually renew themselves and innovate. Anne-Marie, can I ask you that question about size? And I've got a question from the audience here. What have we lost in going from the original hundreds of funds competing to 10 large bank-like funds? And I guess that, that purpose is really important, isn't it? Because the bigger the fund, the more professionals you need to run it, the, you know, keep, keeping that connection back to members becomes an even bigger challenge. So it's about culture, and, and I don't subscribe to the theory that culture necessarily gets lost with size, because, I, you know, there's some very big organisations that run that have excellent um, culture. So it's about fostering those cultures as you grow, and I think that's really important. And the question about the retirement part of that, I think that when the funds started, you know, they were always set up to be an adjunct to the age pension and people generally would get lump sums and up to, to now, you know, to more recent times, people didn't have very large balances so, you know, the amount that they had to take into retirement was different. We're going to a very different era where people are having growing account balances and it's about the challenge for funds to have products that enables people as they go into retirement, whatever that means, like, you know, it used to be an age and that was retirement. It's so much different, very different for every individual, how they approach that post-career time of their, their life, what they do, what they need to, to spend. So it's about encouraging people to be able to plan and have that that those years planned out and, and the income they're going to need to do it, which will be a, vari you know, a variety of means. So funds need to have the products, but we also need the ability to be able to provide that guidance and advice um, through that life journey, uh, financial journey, to uh, enable people to have those you know, later years. And this morning we heard some study that if you're over 45, now you're old. Um, so, bad luck for most of the room, I've got to say. Um, it's, but, all, it's all relative. You know, it is all relative. I mean, someone the other day was telling me about, you know, these elderly couple in their 70s, and I said, hmm, don't think the 70s is old. You know, it is all relative. Um, <laughs> but that, that is the challenge. I think that's our challenge going forward, is um, having... We've still got to um, have great accumulation products. We still have to invest in purpose-driven businesses. We still have to be purpose-driven businesses. And we also need to cater as people um, move out of their, their working lives. Hmm. Did you want to make a comment about size? I think there's a lot of discussion about size in Australia. When you compare the largest Australian funds to offshore funds, we're not as large, so I'm very hopeful that the diseconomies won't eventuate and that we've got enough, you know, points of reference globally to ensure that we can still run the funds and keep that sense of purpose and the culture because I think culture is far more 
important than a debate around size. Uh, let's try and get through some of these questions or some more of these questions and do send them through. We've got uh, six or seven minutes, so I'll get through as many as we can. Uh, Learning from the last 30 years of superannuation, should the industry start influencing potential members earlier rather than waiting for these potential or future members to join the workforce? Gary, if I put this to you, and if, if there is any silver lining out of early release of super, at least people found out they had a super account. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. And uh, now they've found out they've got a lot less in their super account. And it's hard to uh, make up. And they got a good lesson about compound interest, you know, because of all the compound returns that they now can never get back. They're gone. That, that compounding effect is now gone. Um, look, uh, the, and, and by the way, the risk was there, not so much in the actual withdrawals. The risk was in the precedent of, of a government that might have delighted in um, turning um, super into a do-it-yourself unemployment benefit for the future. That was the risk, not the, actual, the single act itself. It was the precedent, and hopefully that has been put to bed. Um, I think, look, I think you can't expect young people to make superannuation and retirement their major uh, concern or even a major concern uh, at all. I think that's why you have a compulsory system. That's why a compulsory system works and other systems don't work and that nations that don't have a compulsory system uh, have all sorts of problems uh, in terms of... Uh, um, living standards for, for an ageing population. Um, I think, in many ways, I think the bigger challenge for, for super funds is to um, actually pick up the challenge now that's open to them of providing a lot more low-cost, quality, unconflicted advice to their members once they do get to the point of having substantial amounts of money because there's not much point in growing a, a nice super pot over 30 or 40 years and then having it dissipated through very poor choices uh, come retirement. Hmm. Anne-Marie, this is a, a constant challenge for the sector, isn't it? I mean, I just refer to my own 21-year-old who's a member of Australian Super, and I informed her that her Super would be in shares. And I know she might not be the most financially literate person, but she looked at me and she said, what? I thought it was in the bank. <laughs> There's a lot they don't know. Oh, and, you know, th we're not going to solve that issue overnight or over our lifetime. You know, that's human nature. Um, when you don't need to think about something, you don't need to think about something. And so for younger people, I think we sometimes stress too much on that. Um, let, you know, things take their, their, their path. Um, but, and, and there's a lot more education now around where um, investments happen. And I have to say that a lot more younger people are quite investment savvy. You know, you'll know from your own kids that might run their own share portfolio, you know, notwithstanding, you know, on the side, a lot more in um, their 20s and 30s doing that now than 30 years ago, let mm. me say. Um, so, th so it is changed and it's changing over time. And there's always going to be room for improvement. So I think we've just got to, you know... Um, address it at the points it needs to be addressed. I think technology and the digitalisation um, of information and communication from funds to members gives us a really good platform for a different type of engagement because we're now at a point where we will have people from the first day of their working life right through their retirement. And so we do need, I believe, to 
communicate with them at different points of their life cycle and communicate with them in a way that best engages with them. I don't know how many of you watch The Handmaid's Tale, but the thing that really struck me is if you don't take an interest in things that are important, they can change and be removed over time. And we do have a compulsory system, and it is fabulous, but it will continue to be fabulous if we all actually take an active interest, and that includes trying to engage our members. Another question here, which, which goes to some of the inequities. In fact, there's two questions along these lines. Do you believe there's an opportunity to amalgamate the super of family members so one person is not disadvantaged by caring duties? Anne-Marie, the whole idea of household super. Um, so I have very firm views on this. I'm dead against it, so that's, the, so that's up front. Um, you know, the old saying, a retirement plan is not a man. And it's really important because if you do combine households, women will be even more, I believe, in the main, more disadvantaged. And so I always say to women, it's really important if you're part of a couple that you, or a family, you get that advice as a family, but also get individual advice because things don't always stay the same and things might look fabulous today and in 10 years' time, things might not be quite so fabulous. And so... If you look at a lot of the research around this, I'm just not convinced that it's going to be advantageous to the lower income earner in that system. We've got a lot of agreement, obviously, uh, on the floor. Um, we've only got a minute left. I just wanted to finish by asking the panel, it's a hard question, but essentially, if we were going to sit here in another 30 years' time, what would be the thing that you're likely to still be struggling with? I mean, obviously, inequities in the system are the key thing at the moment, along with, I suppose, the shift to retirement. But is there something that is perhaps at the forefront as the biggest challenge and the one that will be the hardest to grapple with? Gary, you can't kick me under the table for going first, so I'll <laughs> go to you. Uh, uh, I, I think I, I feel as though I've really made my point about that, which is the housing question. This, this is a national crisis uh, of homelessness and lack of affordability. I think that's... And that's not going to be fixed quickly. So I think that is a 10-year uh, horizon. And I think as long as it's not addressed, uh, it will be the political Achilles heel for the superannuation sector. There will always be those who say, well, we haven't addressed that, so let's just take all the money off the super system and directed uh, in other ways through banks or directly by government into housing. And if the super sector doesn't address it, I would think that's probably a justified position to hold in 10 years' time. Just briefly, Alana. I'm an optimist, so I'm not going to answer what the shortcomings will be. I think in the next 30 years, I hope that we reflect back that we've got a strong alignment on the purpose of super because that really underpins a lot. We've got the continuation of strong member-focused funds with high performance and that we have actually addressed the inequities because the solutions are there. We just need to have the courage and support to implement them. So I agree we should be very positive, but we will still see the outcomes of the inequities that we've currently got. But I think we will have solved the affordable housing issue in 30 years. <laughs> Please join me in thanking our panel very much for their insights. Anne-Marie, Alana and Gary.
That's all for this episode of Supertalk. For more episodes of Supertalk and for more information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.